0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to this event um, on the cost of connection, how data is colonizing human life and appropriate um, it for um, capitalism. Um, My name is Bing Chuan Meng. I'm, I'm an associate professor in the Department of Media Communications at LSE. And this event is to celebrate the publication of a wonderful new book with the same title. It was initially scheduled um, around the same time last year and just before the first UK lockdown. So we had to reschedule it for obvious reasons. Um, But in a way, by moving it online, I think it's great that it has enabled more of you to take part in today's event. I'm just going to um, briefly introduce our speakers. Two of them are the co-authors of this book um, in the order they will be speaking. Um, And then I will just hand over to um, the speakers. So our first speaker today um, is also one of the co-authors of the book. Nick Caudry is a professor of media communications and social theory at the LIC, and um, he has been also a faculty associate um, since 2017 at Harvard's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. He's the author and editor of 14 books, including Mediated Construction of Reality, Media Society World, Social Theory, and Digital Media Practice, Why Voice Matters, and Media, Why It Matters, published uh, in 2019. And our second speaker today is Ulysses Ali Mahias, who is a professor of communication studies and director of the Institute for Global Engagement at the State University of New York College at Oswego. He's a media scholar whose work encompasses critical internet studies, network theory and science, philosophy and sociology of technology and the political economy of digital media. He's the author of *Of the Network, Disrupting the digital world. So after Nick and Ulysses have introduced the gist of their book, we will have, um, discussant Mutali and Condi, who is the founding CEO of AI for the People, a nonprofit communications agency. Prior to this, Mutali worked at in, um, AI governance. And during that time, she was part of the team that introduced the algorithmic and deepfakes algorithmic acts, as well as the non-biometric barriers to housing act to the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, so Nick and Ulysses will be speaking for around 35, 40 minutes and then followed, I think maybe by uh, 15 minutes um, response from Mitali. Then that should leave us a good half an hour for um, Q&A. So Nick and Ulysses, I'm now handing over to you guys.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much, Bing Chun. And I want to thank Luam Tesfei at LSE for all her excellent work in organizing this webinar. Uh, Ulysses and I are very much looking forward to what our friend Mutali will be saying later. But first, to set things up for that discussion, we want to introduce you to the main argument of our book, The Costs of Connection. And as Benjamin said, we had planned to uh, launch this book a year ago at LSE, but sadly we couldn't. We also want to reflect more broadly on a year on from the book or a year and a half on, more broadly on what it means to take a decolonial stance to data and technology, because we've had a lot of opportunity to think more about this in the past 12 months. Now, the question we pose in our book is basically very simple. The question is, what is going on with data? How should we frame the countless new, not so new, developments with data in business and government, society and daily life? Developments that for sure have been accelerated by the living conditions under the global pandemic. Now, there are many ideas on the table, as you probably know most of them relate to capitalism the idea that we're living somehow a new stage of capitalism a digital capitalism perhaps informational capitalism platform capitalism most famously surveillance capitalism theorized by Shoshana Zuboff or most literally but also interestingly a data capitalism but in our book we ask Could what's going on with data be something potentially even larger? Could it be something truly momentous in world history? In other words, a new phase in the relations between colonialism and capitalism. Now, we get some hints of this in the business cliches of the past five years. For example, this one from the front cover of The Economist from May 2017. You may well have heard of it, even if you didn't see it at the time. Data As suggested by the drawing, data is the new oil. Oil, of course, been being the paradigmatic colonial asset. Is this phrase just a harmless metaphor or is this phrase precisely the cover for a genuinely new reality that deserves the name colonialism, but whose actual workings must be disguised if at all possible? That possibility of a colonial framing of what's going on with data emerged, in fact, in the notorious Cambridge Analytica scandal three years ago. You probably remember it. Cambridge Analytica, a small company able to use Facebook generated data to draw up psychological profiles of hundreds of thousands of Facebook users and then target them with political propaganda. The insider who broke the scandal, Christopher Wiley, a few weeks later, when asked about Cambridge Analytica's plans to influence politics in India said on Twitter, this is what modern colonialism looks like.
2: But what could that actually mean? So a central point in our argument is basically that this is not a metaphor. We're using the word colonialism very specifically and not metaphorically. But basically to describe an emerging reality, we are essentially talking about a new phase in the relations between colonialism and capitalism. As Nick said, something that we are calling data colonialism. And this emerging phase is preparing the ground for a new mode of capitalist production. Just like colonialism prepared the ground for industrial capitalism. If we think about the transition between plantations and factories, They actually both coexisted in history and one financed the other. So data colonialism is not only preparing the ground for this uh, new mode of capitalist production, it's doing that while coexisting with the inequalities created during colonialism. So the legacy of underdevelopment, of racism, of violence. And this is important also because other similar concepts fail to account for the global scope of data colonialism. For instance, Martino's concept of techno-colonialism suggests that only the South is the victim while ignoring oppressed populations in the North. Likewise, uh, Michael Quetz's concept of digital colonialism focuses only on big tech from Silicon Valley as the perpetrators. So both approaches fail to capture the full scope of this emerging reality. Now, if this is indeed a global phenomenon, are we suggesting that we can expect to see the same level of physical violence at a global level that we saw during historic colonialism? No, we are not making a one-to-one comparison, but we are saying that the impact of the social change is comparable. So we're talking about different means, but similar ends. So let me give you sort of the official definition of uh, data colonialism. We say that it is an emerging order for the appropriation of human life so that data can be continuously extracted from it for profit. And in order to make sense of this definition, we also need to understand a word, coloniality, which was developed by Anibal Quijano. So the difference between colonialism and coloniality, Kihano suggested that even if we assume that colonialism is over, of course, depending on who you ask, our friends in Puerto Rico or Palestine, it might not be over, but uh, colonies got their independence. So we could say that it is over for most of the world, but the legacy of colonialism continues. And that's what he called coloniality. So, in terms of power relations, in terms of race relations, even in terms of the construction of knowledge, we still have very much the legacy of colonialism with us. So, we are saying that there are differences between historic colonialism and data colonialism. They both have different modes, different intensities, different scales, different contexts. That's true. But there is one clear similarity, and that is the historical function of colonialism is the same, and that function is to dispossess. The old colonialism grabbed land, the new one grabs us, our social lives, through the medium of data. So how is this new social order being rationalized? One of the reasons why it's so effective is because these new rationalities and justifications are based on old rationalities and justifications. And whether those are economic, legal, technological rationalities, they have a deep colonial past. Let's start with the concept of cheap nature, for instance. To colonize the world, nature had to be framed as cheap. It was supposed to be abundant. It was free. From a legal perspective, it was without owner, at least a civilized owner, right? That's why we have the concept of terra nullius, no man's land, land that can be appropriated by the colonizer. Let's follow that up. From cheap nature, we go to cheap labor. In colonialism, some humans, and this was mostly determined by race, provided the labor required to transform nature into wealth. So exploitation and abuse are thus framed as social progress. It's basically for the good of humanity that these things are happening in colonialism, we are told. If we follow this transition of cheap nature to cheap labor, now we arrive then at cheap data. And we see the same extractive rationality that we saw with nature and labor. Cheap data, again, we're told it's abundant. It doesn't have an owner, at least in its aggregate form. Individually, yes, you and I produce it. But once it's uh, collected by a corporation, then it doesn't have an owner. And it needs uh, processing, a very technologized processing. So our job is basically only to generate it. And we're told that this is what progress looks like. So what do we gain by looking at things this way?
1: Yes, we realize that it might be unsettling to compare what's going on both in the global north and the global south, to compare what's going on there with data to colonialism. We recognize that. So let's go straight to the conclusion of our book and summarize for you what we see as the advantages of this approach. There are basically two types of advantage, advantages of scope and advantages of depth. A colonial approach to what's going on with data means understanding it in terms not just of the past 40 years in which the Internet has developed on the commercial scale, but the past 500 years. And it also means looking far into the future too, seeing data extraction today as a new historically significant form of resource extraction that builds the foundations quite possibly of the next stage of capitalism, just as historic colonialism paved the way for industrial capitalism, which came 200 years later. A colonial approach also widens our sense of the scope of what's happening with data. So we're not just talking with this concept about what happens on the social media platforms, where most of the debate until now has been focused. We're also looking at the massive expansion of surveillance right across the economy, right across society, so that if you are in a low-paid job, you are very likely today to be surveilled in every aspect of your work, moment to moment. Surveillance tied to the movements of your body. We're also looking at the emergence of the gig economy far from social media platforms, but depending on the logic of platforms to put and create new forms of extracting value from labor at a distance. We're also looking at the growth of logistics, which goes back over the past three or four decades, long before the emergence of Facebook or Google to track things. Yes, we all want our things to arrive on time. But of course, the tracking of things also involves the tracking of human bodies that move the things. And finally, included in our concept of data colonialism, we look at internal corporate data, very often forgotten in these debates. But remember that IBM, not one of the sexy big tech companies, as it's well aware, in its 2016 annual report said that 80 percent of the world's most valuable data is actually internal to corporations. It's not extracted through external platforms. But that word internal is rather slippery. The details of my life, or at least my milk consumption, is now no longer internal to me. It's internal to the company that provides my smart fridge, if I have one, through the Internet of Things. So those are the advantages of scope to this concept but there are also advantages of depth. A colonial approach deepens our sense of what is being achieved through data. We propose that it's nothing less than the creation of a new social and economic order with its own new forms of dependency and rule, forms of governance, based, of course, on very nice things such as convenience, such as customization and personalization. But at the same time, of course, reinforcing, reproducing those older inequalities Ulysses was talking about of class, gender, and of course, race. It's also only through a decolonial approach that we can grasp big data, that very attractive rhetoric as the continuation of something not so attractive the continuation of the West's long-term attempt to impose a single version of rationality on the world. That deeper colonial continuity of the entanglement of power and knowledge, of power with rationality that has gone on throughout maternity, an entanglement that of course is at the heart of the concept of coloniality from the Peruvian sociologist Aníbal Quijano that Ulysses mentioned earlier. And then finally, this colonial approach enables us to see that all of this takes place, all the celebration of big data within the deep colonial underpinning of capitalism. For a long time, ignored in the scholarship on capitalism, but now of course, absolutely fundamental to our understanding of it. As Gargi Bhattacharya brings out in her own work on racial capitalism, which as she points out has its roots in the act of colonial appropriation by a West which supposed itself specially entitled to the resources of the earth. So those we think are the overall advantages of the direction of our argument, and we'll no doubt discuss them with you and Mutali later. But let's, let's now look in a little bit more detail at how data colonialism actually works, how it achieves its goal of conquering territory. And that means, since we said at the beginning that what's happening with data is part of the ongoing relations between colonialism and capitalism, that means going back to the most important social theory about capitalism, which is Karl Marx's work. And here, on the face of it, we face a challenge. Because for Marx, it was labor relations that are the engine to reproduce capitalism as a social phenomenon. And of course, labor relations are still very important. And they're increasingly being datafied, as we know very well. But we argue in our book that this emerging social order of data colonialism cannot be understood primarily through labor relations. Its scope must go much wider. And the reason is very simple. The reason is that we're part of that order of data colonialism, even though at those moments at the very end of our working week or our studying week, when we're using our phone to swap photos with our friends or closest family, when we know we're not working, because at last we are relaxing. And yet we are still part of the extractive order of data colonialism. So we have to take that into account, too, in understanding the social order, which means we need to understand how it works through a new concept based around the the fundamentals of Marx's concept, but a new type of social relation we call data relations. Data relations are ways of reproducing social life to configure it, to configure our social interactions so as to optimize the extraction of data from us for profit. Just to mention briefly, the conceptual root of that concept comes from Moisha Postone, who argued, one of the most radical thinkers in extending Marxist thinking to the present day, he argued that at the core of Marxist theory, the fundamental characteristic of capitalism is not in fact labor relations. It's not even the commodification that makes possible labor relations, it's something even deeper, which is the abstracting force itself that possibility of taking the messy flow of everyday life and transforming it through abstraction into something which can be exchanged for value. And what better way is there, we propose, to understand datification, the conversion of our lives into data for various purposes, what better than to understand this as a fundamental process of abstracting from the reality of our life? but through this fundamental process of abstraction at the core of data colonialism and the emerging new capitalism, ordinary social life, the life that we lead, the life that our friends and family lead becomes a direct factor into capitalist production. And Marx actually commented on on this when he talked about how seeds, how manure, those were his examples, became commodified as everything started to be commodified in the development of industrial capitalism, even agriculture too. Through dotification, human life itself becomes directly annexed to capitalism as an input. It becomes subject to continuous monitoring and influence in the way that we argue in the book, threatens the space of the self, threatens the very basis of human liberty, but in ways that because of the ongoing legacy of historic colonialism hurt most of all those who are already economically and socially disadvantaged. Now we all know on a daily basis how these data relations come into being. They come into being every time, for example, we accept the terms and conditions of an app or a platform or a smart device in our home. Every time we do that, we fall back, we fall down into the spiral of data relations. And of course, we usually do so quite peacefully. And that leads us to another crucial point. Now, surely you might be thinking here, you remember the association, Ulysses already touched on it, between colonialism and brutal, unimaginable violence. Surely this is the big difference from historical colonialism. Where is that violence? But, and this is the crucial point, historical colonialism was built on the basis of no prior social relations whatsoever. There were only two ways therefore to seize the gold, brutal physical violence or deception. And the early colonizers of course used both. But today's new mode of colonialism, data colonialism, builds on two centuries of us getting used to capitalism's social relations. Meaning that just a tweak in the background legal terms that govern the operation of our phones is enough to change fundamentally our relation to our own lives.
2: Let's actually talk more specifically about this coloniality of data relations. And in the book, we conduct various transhistorical comparisons, basically using the past to understand the coloniality of data relations in the present. We organize these comparisons using the same 4X model found in strategy video games. Uh, Those 4Xs are explore, expand, exploit, and exterminate. And those are the strategies that you use, for instance, when you play a strategy video game, like the one you see here in the background, which is part of the series Civilization. This is actually colonialism, the video game. In this game, you can play the Spanish, the British, the Dutch, or the French. Uh, The natives and their lands, of course, are controlled by the computer. They're not even fully sentient players. And so you apply these strategies to win the game of colonialism. Now we don't have time to explore many of them. So I'm just going to focus on two very quickly, explore and exterminate. Let's start with explore. And what I want to do here is compare two historical documents. First, let's take a quick look at Google Chrome's terms of service. In case you, like most of us haven't read it, here's what it says in part. When you install Chrome, You give Google a perpetual, irrevocable, worldwide, royalty-free, and non-exclusive license to reproduce, adapt, modify, translate, publish, publicly perform, publicly display, and distribute any content which you submit, post, or display on or through the services. In other words, we're surrendering a lot. Now, I want to compare this to another older document called the requerimiento which in Spanish basically means the demand or the requirement. This is a document that Spanish conquistadors would read just before entering a village in the so-called New World. Many times they would arrive in the middle of the night under cover of darkness and proceed to read a document which imparts said the following. But if you do not submit to the rule of Spain, I certify to you that with the help of God, we shall powerfully enter into your country and shall make war against you in all ways and manners that we can. And shall subject you to the yoke and obedience of the church and their highnesses. We shall take you and your wives and your children and shall make slaves of them. And as such shall sell and dispose of them as your highnesses may command and we shall take away your goods and shall do all the mischief and damage that we can. That's the Spanish requerimiento 1513. Please click accept and install there. Now, we're not saying that what happened after the Recurimento was read is the same thing that happens after you install Google. Chrome, But we do want to call attention to the use of this misleading and abstract language that nobody can do, can understand to basically conduct this trick of this possession. Let's talk a little bit about extermination and return to this theme of uh, violence. We already know that data is being used to make life and death, life and death decisions. And although of these impacts are sometimes difficult to see. So in general, Data colonialism exerts violence at two levels, we argue. The first one is this symbolic level, right? Data colonialism basically exterminates alternative forms of thinking and alternative forms of being. But we do of course continue to see physical violence. Data colonialism continues this legacy of races, sexist, environmental and class violence. Now, there are many examples we could discuss, but a recent one in this case uh, uh, is what happened in hospitals in the United States, which were using algorithms that it turns out discriminated against black people. So the algorithms referred patients for future further care, and it turned out that they were mostly referring uh, um, white patients. And this impacted millions of um, African-Americans. Now, this is a clear example of violence at this physical level, targeting populations that have been targeted through colonialism and capitalism. But it is also an example of symbolic violence, hospitals adopting this technology as a way to maximize efficiency in the face of budget cuts, for instance. Now, given the magnitude of these problems, how do we even begin to resist?
1: Yes, let's start to move to our conclusion and address this question which I'm sure you've been asking yourself as you've listened. If data colonialism is as big as this, if it's such an all-encompassing social and economic order with 500 years of history behind it, how can we even begin to think about resisting, about challenging something this large? That's the question we've been asking ourselves since we began working on this concept at the beginning of around about 2016. Well, the first point is that if what we're thinking about is responding to a social order, a massive connected landscape of rules, regulations, interconnecting behavior and resources, then it's no point thinking of one-track approaches. Ideas of regulating this platform a little bit more strongly than that platform. Maybe the idea that I'm going to opt out of Facebook tomorrow and hope other people follow me. These would even begin to scratch the surface of what resisting a global social economic order of data colonialism would mean. The second point, which we're happy to recognize, is that there are some signs, even within the big tech industry. Of taking seriously some of the points that we are making. There was an important paper that came out last year by and Mohamed and colleagues based at uh, DeepMind, a subsidiary of Google, on deep colonial AI. And this was an important argument. It called for better codes for ethical AI within the industry, and drew on a lot of the literature around colonialism. But at the same time, we would point out That the transformation we're looking at here that would amount to true social resistance cannot just go on within big tech itself it can't just be a matter of twiddling the dials it has to be a deep social process that includes a wide range of citizens it's not just a technical matter the third important point Is that although many of the challenges posed by data colonialism are very general? They are challenges for the whole of humanity, we truly believe. At the same time, in building solidarity around this issue, we have to recognize that data colonialism has certain over determined targets. The targets based on race, as Sophia Noble and Ruha Benjamin have pointed out in their work. Targets based on class, as Virginia Eubanks pointed out, targets based on gender, as Catherine D'Ignacio and Lauren Klein bring out in their book last year, Data Feminism. Targets based around indigenous rights, as Paola ricalti brings out in her important version of the data colonialism thesis. In other words, data colonialism as an order will continue to produce. It will find new ways to reinforce. Those inequalities that were inherited from centuries of colonialism and colonialism's relations to capitalism. And that is a scale of the challenge that all of us have to face.
2: And just to wrap up with a few more um, suggestions and the ways in which we might decolonize data. uh, We also believe that we need to reject the universal rationality of data collection and extraction. Basically this divine mandate of of expanding data collection, we need to reject that. We need to basically reclaim colonized space and time. The space perhaps colonized by surveillance cameras and by digital assistants in our kitchens, in our bedrooms and the time colonized by screens that we spend in front of a screen. We also recognize that we need to build alliances, particularly just beyond the academic world and beyond the global north. And that's why uh, Nick and uh, myself and other colleagues are engaged in a number of um, projects. One is for instance, Tierra Comun, a network of activists interested in data colonialism in Latin America. Uh, Juan Freire Ortiz and I are working perhaps on launching a non-aligned technology movement. Just like we had a non-aligned movement in the Cold War to uh, explore a third path between capitalism and communism, perhaps it is, it is time to explore a path between Silicon Valley and the Chinese Communist Party. And lastly, we believe that we need to learn from past and present decolonization struggles. Um, there are Friends and colleagues who have a lot of experience resisting colonialism, we need to learn from them. How they reappropriated technology, how they reconceptualized common knowledge and built new forms of solidarity, all by using a very important weapon against colonialism. And that weapon is imagination. Because when it is not possible to resist colonialism with the body, it is always possible to resist it with the mind. Decolonizing data is primarily an exercise in creativity, collectively imagining what disconnection looks like and what new forms of connection might look like. Thank you very much for listening.
0: Thank you, Nick and Ulysses. There is already a steady stream of questions coming in. But before we do the Q&A, I'm going to turn the floor to Mitali. Mitali, would, like, would you like to respond?
3: Thank you, uh, Professor Meng. And thank you, Professor Calder and Mihas, for inviting me into this exciting conversation, just in way of introduction to how I come to this conversation before I offer my remarks. I think it might be helpful to ground people. So I um, was born in Zambia and my parents came to the United Kingdom for one year in 1976 to work in the National Health Service and and under Commonwealth rules. So I'm definitely somebody who is a child of not just um, a colonized country, but within my own family heritage had um connected with the Kawunda family who went to uh fight for freedom from the British and um ultimately um very proud of a free zambia and a free africa so i'm certainly coming into any conversation um, about colonialism with a deep sense of personal interest and my initial career was in journalism and so i've been a communicator for the last 20 years actually the first 10 of which were spent at the bbc so i'm always very very excited to be in the company of communication scholars, because I very much think of myself as a communications practitioner and specifically looking at new ways of communicating around uh, technology and the impact of technology on black bodies and other dispossessed subjects, because I believe if we cannot if we cannot do that, then the weight what what is being framed as data colonialism and what i'm going to speak about will creep up on us and destroy us in the same way that the climate actors activists were not able to and climate scientists were not able to kind of stop that creep and and create this third way so my my comments are in three broad buckets and uh, then i have massive provocations and questions So first of all, thank you so much for the presentation, but more importantly, thank you so much for what I see as important work. In my current role um, in a communications agency, what we actually do is take research like yours and try and translate it into journalism products, film products, television products, implant those narratives into the popular conversation because what we're really trying to do is ignite this imagination that you were talking about, ignite this new shared understanding and imaginary of what technology can do aside from making life more convenient and making things more efficient and driving costs down. What is the other side of that? So my first set of comments are really around uh, the framing of the argument and I would suggest that this this framing is important in the sense that unlike colonialism that was tied up in nation state, what we're actually looking at in in Silicon Valley and for the Chinese government are this trans state, these companies that go beyond borders. Um, not just country borders, but actually neighborhood borders. And where that comes from is for the last 15 years, I've lived in New York City. And one of the things that has been very interesting to me is as I moved from a historically black neighborhood with a low median income to what is now a gentrified white neighborhood since 9-11, I was offered faster internet service. Not only was I offered faster internet service, I was also offered cheaper internet service. And this goes to the point that you make in this framing of colonial subjects themselves being victims of racism, classism, sexism, these other deeper social constructs in the practice of deployment of this capitalist goal. And that became that's really important to me in reference to your book because I don't think that ordinary people on the street would make that connection between the colonialist colonialist project and what what it was trying to do, which was to advance um, mainly white people, mainly men, middle mainly middle class people, really set them up as being at the top of society, and then deciding where the rest of us fall. Companies that provide us with our internet services, our phone services, our television services are also doing the same thing through this lens of data. So that one point, that very, I would say, important framing, um, is, is something that I want to raise to the fore, but it, but the other side of that, and this just might, this, this just might me being, somebody who wants to communicate this, like, I'm seeing a project for myself, ultimately, is when you say colonialism, even in high journalism circles, I do do a lot of media commentary. So that's anybody from the NPR that operates very much like Radio 4 here in the United States through to the New York Times. If I go and say colonialism, then that word and that phrase doesn't mean very much to people. But if I say to them, move from a poor neighborhood and move to a white neighborhood and then switch on your internet and see what happens, that's a very real lived experience. The second um, set of comments that I have are really around how it happens and i think that and i have not read this part of the book i am um, b- before i say this i'm going from this i think the how it happens um is what makes eubanks work travel is what makes benjamin's work travel is what makes noble's work travel because in each of those instances the reader can imagine themselves. Uh, clicking onto Google, for example, and conducting a tr- a search, can imagine themselves specifically if they are uh, black, if they are living in a black body, going into a train station um, in any com- in any city in any country at this point, and knowing that the cameras are trained on you. The cameras may be capturing everybody, but the but the they're, they're really trained on you and your your movements through that space. Um, Eubanks work, it's not hard to imagine that the government would decide if we're going to get um, payments during COVID and who gets them and how quickly and, and from a transnational perspective, which governments employ their algorithms to do that work, because as somebody living in the United States, where the big question is, will we get one other cheque? for COVID, that's very different if I was living in Northern Europe where checks have been generated to mainly white populations month after month after month in COVID. And the reason that I think the, the how this happens piece Um, is so powerful and you're really onto something there is that that's the point at which people like me can build narrative because to just go in and say data colonialism happens and it's a terrible thing and and these are these are the comparators without that how-to, there is no way to build story, there's no way to build movement, there's also no way to build the imagination that we need for connectivity that is not dependent on um, extractive capitalist gain. Um, and then the third, um, points of the, the third points I'm, every time I do a talk, I'm always like 15 minutes. That's so long. And then I start talking and it's 10 minutes and I haven't even begun to say everything I want to say. So then the third part, um, which definitely stood out to me is kind of the what next because we have been, you know, we are under, I'm speaking from the United States, we are 400 years into a capitalist project in which the dehumanization of women, the dehumanization of Black people, the dehumanization of Indigenous people, and people of Latinx descent, where we saw very, very, very um clearly that under our last president um with natural disaster in puerto rico who are american citizens were given no relief because their personhood and their citizenhood had been questioned one one of the things that definitely i think would appeal to me and would appeal to uh, and uh, enable those connections outside of the academy, because I always make it very clear my work is uh, my work is in conversation with the academy, but not of the academy. And that imagination piece is where I think, from a policy perspective, this book and the work that comes from this book could be incredibly helpful, because we are we have seen a resurgence of the right um through due to algorithmic decision making on social media platforms, but it has been also coupled with the resurgence to the left and for the very first time in over 50 years, at least in the United States, people standing up and saying that they are socialists. And coupling that socialism to, to freedom of expression, freedom of movement and freedom of um, exercising our political rights and being able to kind of just, just oppose that. That lack of freedom with the right, who are really um, at this stage in the United States, are seen to have aligned through the Cambridge Analyt- Cambridge Analytical reporting with our political right. So, what was very interesting to me was that in the beginning of my transition from journalism to technology, it was really through this narrative of Silicon Valley are the good guys. They're making life easier. It's so fun to work here. But once working within Silicon Valley and working very closely with Google, realizing that I was part, a cog in the, you talked about how do we fall into this, that I was a cog in a wheel that ancestrally my people and people like me of similar class from um, Africa have been fighting against. We are the children and the grandchildren of the anti-colonial movement. Literally, we are born of those loins. Yet here we are rushing for jobs in Google and Microsoft and, and other companies, um, to do, to do this work of, um, technical colonialism. And then, oh, oh my goodness, I'm coming up to time. And then very quickly, because I do want to open this up, even though I could speak to you about this for hours, so please don't think me rushing is lack of things to say. It's really, oh, oh, I want to expand the conversation, is I do um, think that this is a new moment for scholars who are creating this knowledge and bringing it to the fore in conversation with practitioners who want this knowledge to be um, as widely known as, uh, again, my moving metaphor, um, I've just bought a television that apparently can speak to me. I do not want to speak to my television. I just want to watch my television. I do not want to give up my voice tracks for language, you know, natural language processing. But I think that this is a pivotal moment as we think about recovery and we think about re- 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 re-emergence into society. Many of the tools that we're going to be given are going to be smart. And the question that I'm asking in my own work is. Is it smart to lay the foundations for what you have very expertly identified as a potential next phase of capitalism? Or do we need to be more speculative in our approach and look at the harms of the data society, the the, the the harms of data in society. This is a twenty-year project. Don't be fooled into thinking that these are start-up companies. These are established co- uh, corporations that will do what Shell and Exxon have done to the environment, but to us, particularly if your human body isn't as valued as that of a white man. And there, I would. Definitely close. but con- massive congratulations! I'm hoping um, I'm hoping that this will turn into uh, some type of media product that we could collaborate on. Because um, while Zuboff did a great job with surveillance capitalism, there was no hope in that text, and I see incredible hope in this. So, thank you for inviting me. Thank you.
0: So, um, Nick and Ulysses, do you guys want to respond to some of Mutali's comments first before we start taking on questions?
1: Well, it was so eloquent, I'd love to say something. Um, Do you want to go first, Ulysses, or shall I? um, Uh, Go ahead,
2: Nick. Um,
1: I think the challenge you make, Mutali, to translate... What is a complicated academic argument? It's a risky argument to say this is not only about capitalism, which is pretty complicated, and data. It's also about colonialism, which is massively complicated. And it's about the two together. It's a risky argument for take. It takes 300 pages to make that argument. It's not straightforward. Or well, even though we try and be as concise as we can in the book, and it's really important then to translate that into images and stories which strike home because we passionately want to communicate this. And that's lies behind many of the projects we've been involved in. If I can give you just one example of what might be relevant, it's something like Fitbit. Fitbit is celebrated. Lots of people I see have an Apple watch. They wanna be more healthy, especially now when we're sitting around isolated from each other, we want health. We want health if we can get it. We want to be in control of our health. The question is, is that what Fitbit offers? It offers a chance to measure ourselves. It offers a chance to trust Fitbit to hold that data safely on its own terms. When Latanya Sweeney, who was the uh, head of technology at the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission in 2014, did some research with her team on, I think it was about uh, two uh devices and about 12 apps, she found that they were giving data to 76 undisclosed third parties. So when you think you're trusting Fitbit because it reflects back your sense you want to be fit for yourself, you were trusting those 76 other undisclosed parties using the data for their own purposes. And it's no surprise therefore that um, that smart tracker of business developments, the Wall Street Journal, in a piece on uh, health data in November 2019 said, uh, celebratory form, health data is the open frontier. So if we're not seeing the colonial frontier, it's because we're not looking in the right places and we're not applying colonial historical perspective to what Wall Street Journal can see very clearly. Thank
2: you very much. I would also just like to say thank you, Mutale, for your wonderful and eloquent comments right on point and um, to some degree also we are guilty as charge in the sense that when we were writing the book we wanted to do something which uh, perhaps uh, one is not supposed to do these days which is build a big theory to explain lots of what is happening Uh, at the same time that theory doesn't make sense or is not complete with the work that other people are doing and so that's why You know, when we talk about uh, Sophia Noble or Benjamin, uh, like you said, those are the people showing how it works. All we try to do is kind of like uh, uh, try to put together an umbrella concept. And, you know, like Lowen said, there's nothing more practical than a good theory. And I I really do believe in that in terms of uh, sparking the imagination and sometimes the outrage that is necessary. Uh, But uh, I really agree with you that uh, those two things go hand in hand. I also like to quote Freire, Freire, Paulo Freire, the Brazilian educator, whenever I can, uh, who said, um, yes, a, a theory without action is just verbalism, just like action without a theory is uh, just empty activism. So we need to marry those two things into a kind of praxis. And so uh, I really appreciate what you said about uh, our responsibility and our, the need to do that. Thank you.
3: And and the last thing I would say before we, well, I'll say two things before we open up. Of course, my power is powering down. So after I say this, I'm gonna go off camera, but I can hear you. I'm just getting my plug, So that's the f- technical point. But when I think about the theater of the oppressed as a way of what do I want my work to be? So I try, I see this theory, it's deeply relatable. It's something that should definitely uh, come out through, through the work, how do I create that theater? How do I create that, that site of action? And I think one of the things that you definitely, um, offer, certainly in British, um, kind of immigrant communities, like the one that I grew up in, colonialism is, is very much understood by us but maybe not married to the idea um, of data so I do I congratulate you just for just for that so I'm on four percent I am listening and I will be back so just bear with me one second
0: Okay, we have already got a lot of questions in in the Q&A box. We probably won't be able to go through um all of them. So, my apology in advance to those whose question um cannot be dr- addressed. But what I'm going to do is I will try my best to <laughs> cluster those questions um as 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 much as I can in in um, um in a way that makes sense maybe um, for you guys to, to respond. So the first cluster of three questions, I think more or less are asking for uh, points of clarification. And I guess it's more um, directly addressed to the two of you, Nick and Ulysses. Um, so the question from Anna, um, in let's say traditional territorial clolo- colonialism, the role of the old empires are crucial in creating and sustaining that world order where do you realistically see the role of contemporary states in data capitalism? And do you think a more positive action model for states is possible? And the second question from Zachariah is just a clarification under the definition of this emerging data colonialism. It is being used for capitalism. Is the book saying that the old colonialism we know doesn't focus on capitalism as much as this emerging data colonialism? And the third one from Wilma says, could you further illustrate the figure of the colonialist in um, this theory? Who is the data cl- colonialist and what is his or her aim? So that's that's the first cluster. Okay.
1: Um, hey. The second point, I was writing it down and then I was listening to the third point. So I just remind me of that second question. What was it? Uh,
0: is asking whether uh, the book is saying the old colonialism we oh. know doesn't focus on capitalism as much as there is emerging data colonialism. Right.
1: Well, I can answer that one. We're not saying that the old uh, colonialism was not connected with capitalism. It's just the situation at the beginning of the old colonialism was more complicated because capitalism didn't yet exist. It was the, res, the grabbing of resources from the rest of the world that made possible the engine that it, two centuries later led to capitalism. So now we're looking at something a bit different, which is his contemporary colonialism, a new form of fundamental land grab, just as dramatic as the original one, but taking against, place against a mature capitalism that's been going for already 200 years. So we're not saying it's fundamentally different. This intertwining of colonialism and capitalism is 500 years long, but we're now at a more complex, mature phase of it, so the relations will be more detailed, and we have to see how they play out, but that's, that will be mounted to that point. Um,
2: yeah, um, I, I can try to touch on a couple of the other points, and then also, um, uh, Mutale, you can jump in, but I think the other points are related to the role of states, and also just who uh, the colonialist is in this new world order. And I would just uh, suggest that colonialism was always a state enterprise or it was, let's say, a private sector, public sector collaboration. So even though we usually associate it with things like the um, East India Company and such, Corporations needed the uh, role, the, the, they needed the state to play a very important role in terms of providing the legal frameworks, et cetera. And um, I would suggest that that continues uh, today. Um, there are The poles of power are definitely different. Uh, I think we can um, definitely talk about the United States and China perhaps as serving as the two uh, centers of, of, um, of this new order. But uh, states are also very much aligned with uh, um, specific um, corporate strategies. Um, I was actually just reading an article about how even under Biden there seems to be now this move to um, create uh, a supply chain that does involve China when it comes to electronics. Um, and so I think we are again seeing the world being divided into these two spheres uh, and states and corporations together fighting for, for those different pieces. As far as who the colonialist is, I don't know if uh, Mutala, you would like to say something about that point?
3: Yeah, I would like to complicate um, this slightly by adding in the, the, the popularity of personal technology means that we can be both the co- the colonialist and the victim of colonialism. And this is certainly something that I'm seeing. Um, part of my work looks at social media analysis. And what's been really interesting to me is how the FBI have used platforms like Twitter and Facebook to ask ordinary users to identify people that were at the insurrection. And that created a real, um, dilemma for me in the sense that do i want to align with the police state to help with their investigative work using data because what they're asking you to do is look onto your own timelines and into your own social networks and then report these people but then if i don't take part in this am i also part of the the part of being an American citizen. Since living here, I have become naturalized. Obviously, I'm still British. Don't worry, people. I'm still I'm still around. Um, but am I am I being a good citizen? Because much of the naturalization process in the United States really requires that you have an understanding of the history that the 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 amount. What I would. What I would offer is an imagined history of the United States because, of course, it doesn't include Black people. It doesn't mention that there were native people here before. Different Zoom. We can go into it. But if I am going to be a citizen of that country, will I then take part in this digital um, police work when all I have is a phone? So I would also start to think about, where does the person come in? And then on that other point, I do work around surveillance. And state surveillance, um, but one of the things I'm having to negotiate is Amazon Ring, which is a doorbell that has facial recognition and surveillance capabilities, but it's being used by private citizens. So in that case, who are these private citizens uh, using this technology against and why? So I, w- I would consider that too.
1: Perhaps I could just quickly add a point on that because it's very important. So we actually, in the book, we avoid, uh, although it's a good question, we avoid using the word colonialist in relation to the current situation. And partly that's because, as Natalia says, this is very complicated. As we stress, we're all involved complicitly in building this order until we stop doing that. We all are. We all involved. But the other thing that's also very important is that these relations... A multiple multiple ways everyone is involved there's no way of stepping back from it and it's happening on many levels at once and that's something we just have to accept or resist
0: okay so speaking of resistance i i, I think the next cluster of questions are more or less asking um What's what's next? What um, this knowledge would enable us to to do? So um, the first one is from uh, Gergi and asking a lot of us uh, a lot of useful information feeds into progress through data collection. How do we separate the quote unquote good and the quote unquote bad? And the next one is kind of related to this from Raffala. Um, I'm 100% sure we need to decolonize this space and find social and real-life options to fight data and all kinds of colonialism. However, as a Latin American who saw the last elections here being strongly moved by social media and social networks and data collection, I sometimes find myself in conflict between stepping away from these platforms and creating new ways to engage or keep myself on them, using them for good Outcomes using their own power to promote change, and the third one is actually um, um, asking specifically um, for Mutali to to respond. Um, are there any policy initiatives in particular that you have come across that you think have high potential for tackling some of the issues you have mentioned around data discrimination along lines of race, class, gender, etc.?
1: Um, Shall I go at the first one, Ulysses, perhaps? Um, Sure. It's a good question. How do we separate good from bad data? And let's be really clear, we are not against data in writing this book. Obviously, we want to know data about violence by men against women on a particular street where we live. We need that data. We need to collect it. That goes without saying. There can be good data. The way I will put the question is a bit different. How can we separate good and bad? The question is not normally us who are asked that question. It's the corporations who acquire the data, who extract it from us, who have almost entire control of that data. Just last night, I was looking at the privacy policy of Google for some research we're doing on uh, Google Home Suite and so on. Well, it goes on a long time. But It's a terrifying document. This isn't just Google Chrome, the macro Google policy, which basically says that they surveil us in order to improve their services, whatever their services may be from time to time. So it's almost an infinite colonial expanse of extraction, which we have almost no sense of its boundaries, its horizons. So until we reinsert the right of citizens, of human beings to say data is good for us, if we are given a chance to be asked that question, what data we want to gather, on what terms, who we want to hold it, for what purpose, who we want to transfer have it transferred to, unless we start to have that discussion, which we are absolutely not having in societies, even though we may have regulations that try and go in a little bit in that direction, we're not having those decisions at the level of communities, until we have that, we can't, We shouldn't be asking the question of how we separate good from bad data. We need to change the terms of the debate completely into who has influence on the question of good or bad data.
2: Uh, maybe I can address the second question since the third one was addressed specifically to Mutale. But yeah, go ahead.
0: This,
2: this issue of um, do we opt out of the platforms that we're using when um, in fact many of these platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Uh, can be used for uh, activism, for organizing. Um, And so I think, uh, uh, in my opinion, we don't need to do that or opting out is not going to be uh, the solution to this very complex problem. Uh, We face this question throughout history again and again. Um, I like to refer to the way in which Audre
3: Lorde
2: framed it, the poet, uh, the question about whether the master's tools can be used to dismantle the master's house. I think they can be at least uh, maybe uh, the first and second stories of the house. The foundations might need more complicated tools, but uh, if that's what you got available at hand, you should definitely uh, uh, use it. So I'm all for continuing to use Facebook and Twitter, although I myself don't use them very much. But if that's what people use, uh, um, I would say let us I used to say, uh, uh, quote uh, Mao and say, let a thousand flowers bloom until I found that that was actually a Chinese uh, strategy for cracking down on dissidents, which speaks to the danger uh, uh, which dissolution also suggests. By all means, continue to use Facebook, but be aware of the ways in which Facebook is being used against you as an activist. So um, um, I think at the end of the day, we need to learn, like I said earlier, from other strategies, uh, from other movements of decolonization, uh, boycott, and divestment are very important strategies that I think we need to um, learn from how they have been used, even in the environmental movement, um, to open up new possibilities for
3: how we're going to tackle this issue. And I'll tackle the third, but just um, kind of plus one, Ulysses, really quickly. I, um, I, I also love data and love technology. That's why I'm in this field. But beyond that, um, I'm looking to try and create new methodologies to study Clubhouse, which is a, a new audio app. And the reason I'm interested in that is in the United States, 53% of adults get their news from social media first. So even when we are trying to communicate, we are dealing with an algorithmically understood reality and if we're not, if we don't, if we're not in conversation with that, we can't be effective. Um, but in terms of promising policy, it's very early to say here in the United States, the Biden government are still in their first hundred days, but I, I'm seeing some things that I'm potentially thinking about as being very horrifying. Um, one of them is, uh, I'm on a project that's looking at the way surveillance technology is used in the context of deportation. And the Trump administration had been using Palantir, which is why I think that divestment and corporate activism has to be part of this discussion, because we can think of just going to the first question very quickly. I can think of a million ways that tech could be used better. They're just not linked to capitalism. And so because they're not linked to gain, they're not going to have any traction. And I have actually spoken to uh, Brad Smith, who's the leader of Microsoft right now and, and said, you know, you really should be using facial recognition to track nature so that we can catalog nature, we can recognize it. I don't know one zebra from the other. Seems to me that you could use this to solve that problem and got laughed at because there was no police force to sell that technology to for zebras. So I will say that, but the second, but going back to the laws that I've seen, the reason that I'm pretty horrified with this immigration and uh, surveillance technology proposal is that the Biden administration are saying it is more humane for us to use surveillance technology because we're taking out humans and therefore we're taking out human bias, which is a Silicon Valley talking point. It is also the talking point of the Chinese government as they surveil the Yugos and other minority groups. Like it's not us, the machine said you're a Yuga, therefore you have to go to this camp. And so I do think that this will be an uphill struggle in the United States and and in the advisory work I do with the UN that's brought me into conversation with folks in the EU. And what's happening in the European parliament is that they're often looking to the United States. Um, for direction and so if Washington is saying that technology is is, is you know it, it's, it's safer it's more efficient the the potential of that that rhetoric being adopted um, is really scary in my own work, we were really trying to center um, arguments that would protect the most minoritized groups using the language of national security so for example the reason that we would want to label social media which was the central call of the deepfakes accountability act where social media content was because of cambridge analytica and it would be a national security risk to have information on these platforms that isn't true shaping the political discourse this was in 2016 and 17 and nobody believed us if we were to introduce that act now with that same language post-insurrection and looking at what happens when the left leaves platforms, so Parler, A-Chan, 4chan, are allowed to, to, to create these alternative realities, I think that it would be viewed very differently. So um, I'm hoping that in the work that this administration does in the United States, they will look back to some of the uh, previous Um, bills that I certainly was involved in, which did not get traction, they didn't even get votes. Whereas in in today's political reality, um, they they probably would be viewed more favourably.
0: Okay, Um, so I think the next cluster of three questions um, are linking the main argument of the book more with um, inequality at a global level. So the first one from Hannah saying that it's interesting to me that you focus on data colonialism. Do you feel that this sits at the very top of a colonial Internet and technology system? Or do you see it as part of this system more horizontally? For example, where does it fit with dominance of Global North knowledge and knowledge systems online or the dominance of Californian tech companies or Global North control over tech infrastructures? And the next one from Jamie asking, um, how does global inequalities of data flow between countries and unfair ICT rollout across the world figure into data colonialism? And the third one from Brian asking, um, in an ever more digital world, it remains a matter of concern that countries with the most youthful populations in the world are facing a double disadvantage of weak health systems and low access to digital technology what are the implications of data colonialism on children and young people? Furthermore, what are your thoughts on civic data solidarity?
3: Um, I I can go for the young people um, questions. So I sit on the TikTok content advisory board, which is a platform that really prides itself to being the platform of children. And so much of our content much many of the content questions that we look at are in the context of the very young beings that being said we're really thinking about very young people in the americas and very young people in the uk and, and mainland island we have not started to think about, uh, more global rollouts. And, but the point that you make is really interesting because the next billion, Facebook, on the other hand, their business model is going into what we call the global South, right? That's their next billion users. And one of the things that, um, I, I see where this, this book becomes really relevant is the knowledge being produced by the South and about the South is often being produced in the North through scholars and activists and practitioners who have those types of connections. So people like me, for example, um, or uh, Nick and I, our colleague at Berkman, uh, Sabelo Montebali, I think his last name is, who's really looking at um, Bantu, Bantu understanding of community and selfhood through the context of AI. And that doesn't allow for the very lived and real experience of people who wake up every single day in Lusaka in Zambia, for example, or in Cape Town or in, in, um, Rio de Janeiro, you know, in Rio to uh, inform our work around the realities. And so I do think that until we can democratize knowledge, until we can fund um, from a th- philanthropic um, perspective, thinkers from in those areas, we're never going to have a complete view. Um, I, I was on Zambian Twitter this morning and, and found that people are getting, is similar to this, to the north, but, but, I would say more deadly because of the lack of social net, social security networks. But employers, uh, American companies that employ Zambian people to work with them, are using social networks to decide who to maintain, who to hire, and who, who to keep and who to let go um, around COVID. And that was really scary to me um, as well. So I'll let the others.
1: Well, I'd like to come back to the first question, but. First of all, I just want to pick up what Mutalis just said, Um, because, I mean, the core point we're really making, and and this only comes in a colonial framework, is to understand the grabbing of resource as fundamentally framed within a sense of superior knowledge, which is the colonial framing of 500 years of history. But that, of course, has a really particular force when the asset itself is knowledge. When what's in the ground is data taken from our lives, it gives double force to this colonial thing. Well, it's our knowledge because we know more anyway, because we're more rational in the West, which is the way the original colonial appropriation was justified, as Kihano makes really clear and many others as well. So some of the resistance to go back to that word has to be internal. Sabelo Malambi at at Harvard is working on using Ubuntu ethics as a way of uh, rethinking AI ethics, but he's also working on machine learning for African languages. That's his new business. It's essential that that work is done too. So the whole data industry is no longer so reliant and centered in the West, in the global North. Otherwise, there's no way forward. So it's partly an internal and external uh, battle, I think. So that's really important. The first question, I think it was a complex one, but basically it was, is the whole tech system at every possible level colonial um, or is it more elaborate than that? Well, it's a difficult question, but I think we would say potentially, yes, the cables, where they're (laughs)
2: laid,
1: why they're laid, where they are rifts directly off the previous history of colonialism in the 19th century, in the early 20th century. That's pretty much where the cables are today. The power of Google and Facebook to pay for the laying of cables is directly linked to their global power, which is itself linked to their position in the West. We can't imagine a Zambian company ever having got into the position they were in because they didn't have access to the capital, partly linked to the past, partly linked to the, the present. The first mover advantage of the platforms is to do with that and so on and so forth. The extraction of the minerals that go into our phones, that go into the chips. All of it is based in the disposition of resources linked to historical colonialism. So all of this is tangled up At every level there is an unequal mo- mode of extracting resources. But where does that leave us in relation to data colonialism? It means that the terms of renegotiating what's happening are even steeper, even more difficult if you're in a country that doesn't have sufficient servers, that doesn't have big tech platforms, that doesn't have control over those minerals, that doesn't have control over the machine learning resources, that you has to buy that from outside. Your chances, and this, we saw this with African countries and Facebook Free Basics, of negotiating, The terms of basic Internet access at the same time negotiating Facebook's offer were very, very limited. It was virtually impossible. So that means that we do face a responsibility, those of us in more privileged countries, to raise this question, but to do it in the way of building international solidarity, which is the idea behind the non-aligned tech movement and Tierra Comun in Latin America. That's our responsibility, not just to put forward the ideas, but to create solidarity around them across the world.
2: I guess I would just um, add um, to the question of the disparities that are being created. I think that was sort of our motivation for also writing the book to spell out how these disparities happen, because um, data colonialism is a global movement, but it doesn't Uh, impact each nation, each community, each individual uh, the same way. Um, And the disparities are very real. Um, Nick already brought up the example of free basics, but there are, uh, um, you know, lots of examples of, for instance, AI companies uh, who set up shop in Africa uh, so that they can hire people to do all of the human uh, reviewing of uh, uh, the data that... the AI machine needs to learn. Uh, This is still being supplied, needs to be supplied by humans at some point. Or I think the other big example is content moderators in Asia uh, who do all of the dirty work of having to go through Facebook content that is violent, degrading, and very, very upsetting. And so again, it falls on humans to do the work of uh, uh, having to weed that out. And of course, it doesn't just fall on any human, These are specific targets, um, populations being targeted because of economic, et cetera, status. Um, Just another brief example, because I love these historical comparisons. And when we were writing the book, I also started to learn a lot about botanical gardens, which I think anyone who has visited uh, a European country and enjoys these beautiful gardens, which have a very uh, deep colonial past. They were basically the data centers of the colonial era where uh, knowledge about plants from the new world was uh, imported into European countries and it could be studied. And then um, the knowledge could then flow to universities, to medical schools, et cetera. Um, so today, uh, I guess we have to ask what will be the botanical garden of the future? Uh, what will be the plantation of the future or in the present, what's playing that very same role? Is it the data center or is it something else? I think um, that's why we find this historical trans-historical comparisons uh, very interesting. Thank you.
0: All right, I'm conscious of time. So this is likely to be the very last cluster of questions and um, our panelists may not even have enough time to address all of them. So I'll just um, Raise them, and if we end up running out of time, I'll just leave them as food for thoughts. So, um, they're all asking about um, the responsibilities that different stakeholders should be taking. The first one from Derek asking, What roles does industry have in combating data colonialism concerning emerging technologies like blockchain, which emphasize transparency and decentralization? And the next one from uh, the next two questions from Gavin and Lucas are kind of related. Gavin was asking, everyone is being exploited by data collection, why should not national regulators aim to turn the big tech business model into subscription utilities, providing a service, not no data collection, no like buttons? And Lucas was asking, in the book, you touch on how neoliberalism and financialization set the preconditions for data colonialism to emerge. How can resistance initiatives challenge the fundamental role financial capital plays in data colonialism?
3: So,
2: Um, impossible to answer in three minutes, (laughs) yes. I'll say
3: very quickly, I have definitely argued that the internet should be a public utility. Um, Australia have also argued that there should be a subscription model around Facebook, and they got shut down and shut out. So, you're dealing with, um, we're dealing with companies that have more power than government, individual governments themselves. And then I have much more to say, but I want to hear from you, Ulysses and Nick.
2: Um. Well, I would just, again, uh, say very quickly, um, uh, I think this is where creativity and imagination are required. And again, when we look at history, for instance, we see for uh, nationalization emerging as a response to uh, colonialism. And I've written a piece for Al Jazeera where basically mostly as an uh, exercise in imagination. I wonder whether uh, the global South could nationalize its data as a way to say this is a resource that's being generated by our citizens. Why should all the benefit? Why should all the profit uh, escape to the North? Uh, You know, some of that wealth and value needs to be retained in our, in our countries as well. So just a, a thought. Um, Just
1: picking up on the third question, um, do we have an answer to how capitalism can do without finance and large-scale finance? I'm afraid we don't have an answer to that. And that's because we're not trying in this book to solve all the problems of capitalism. Or imagine what I've spent my life believing in but not being able to make practical a socialist alternative. We're not claiming something that big. What we are claiming is that the current direction of capitalism, all its forms, is now hitting up against the limits of what humanity should accept. And we have to challenge those fundamental principles now, which is not to say that we know how to build a a non-capitalist alternative or an alternative to financial capitalism. We we, we don't claim that uh, in the book. The the point about um, should uh, regulators make uh, platforms into subscription utilities? Quite possibly. Separately, I've written a paper with Dipay and Ghosh at the Harvard Kennedy School arguing that the things regulators are just not doing right now is challenging this basic business model of the platform, which is based around encouraging the traffic of toxic material, because that makes profit. That needs to be fundamentally stopped, but no regulator has taken that on yet. And the only way to do that is to rethink these platforms as either not necessary or as necessary public utilities. We're needing a totally different structure. But again, we step we step back from making regulatory proposals in the book. Our book is more of a book of the imagination. Regulation is for the next stage. The first stage is to change our view of what is going on in our world and to see it with uh, clearer eyes. I, I'm afraid I don't have anything to say about blockchain and whether that's a positive or a negative <laughs> thing. Um, uh, can you add anything on blockchain? I'm a skeptic, I have to admit, but...
2: I'm not going to try in one minute. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I,
3: have, I have no I- idea about blockchain, so I'm not going there, but you are go- you are pushing me to read. But that's why we use film, television, celebrity and other means and, and narrative uh, drivers to even insert this into the public conversation. Um, I was really honored to show at Sundance this year. And interesting to me um, for some of my colleagues that we're also showing that these questions are not even being asked. So if we don't create the imaginary, then we're not gonna get to policy.
0: I'm afraid that's all the time we have today. Um, So I would like to thank our wonderful three panelists. Um, And I'm sure the discussion will continue. And I also just want to say in the chat box, there are not just questions, but also a lot of praise of how thought provoking this has panel has been. So thank you all.